live from beyond the Beltway. This is Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by, from the right, Jonathan Greenberg, and from the left, Felix Sharp Caballero. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base, AM560, The Answer, WIND Radio in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines are now open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. Tomorrow is Labor Day. That is your traditional start of the campaign season. And if we want to rewind back to June, I think the feelings about which way this uh, midterm election was going to go probably were markedly different from what they seem to be now. On June 14th, you had uh, Republican Myra Flores in South Texas uh, flipping a seat down there. If we look at the con- congressional, generic congressional ballot at that point on June 14th, Republicans on average, according to the real clear politics average, had about a uh, three and a half point lead on the congressional ballot. That is all but evaporated now with uh, the average indicating a slight like 0.1% advantage for the Democrats going into these midterm elections. And we now have our most recent piece of anecdotal evidence on this, which is the uh, special election in Alaska that just happened where uh, Sarah Palin uh, thought at one point to be a likely winner of that race ends up losing that race to the Democrat. Uh, Jonathan, I want to go to you first on how much stock should we put into what we saw with Sarah Palin's election loss? And we'll note that she's up again in a couple of months because she will be um, this is only to fill a couple of months of a term. The next term election, she will be buying for it again. But certainly most recent of these special elections have not been turning out the way that Republicans would be hoping they would. So I don't put a ton of stock in it. for this reason, the uh, first of all, she's she's a known quantity in Alaska, um, primarily known for getting elected governor and then quitting midway through her term so she could go be on a reality TV show. Um, I, I think that uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that that says a lot about what the national mood is. I think there are other things that suggest that the national mood is not as favorable to Republicans as it was a few months ago. But I, I'm not sure that the Alaska race tells us a lot. Um, and the fact that the three of them are, and the other thing is, you're electing somebody for a couple of months in a special election to fill out the end of Don Young's term. Uh, you know, that person's going to go be part of a Democratic majority anyway. Republican voters may do things differently in the fall because they're looking at potentially adding to or creating a, a Republican House majority. I, I think voters will look at it a little bit differently. And again, Sarah Palin is. There's a lot of local stuff that goes into Sarah Palin running for office, much of it bad. There is a lot of local stuff in this. One of the other candidates in the race was uh, Mark Begich third, I believe, who is the son of a long-term Alaska Democrat. As you mentioned, Don Young had represented, you know, people are noting that it's been 49 years since a Democrat has represented Alaska in the House. That's because Don Young was in that seat for 49 years. Uh, Felix, do you, um, not just the Alaska race, but do you think that a lot of these recent special elections where Democrats have been coming out on top indicate that the presumption of a red wave in November was overstated? 
I don't believe that uh, it was overstated. I believe that the Supreme Court acted on on abortion and uh, and essentially gave the Democratic Party a mulligan, uh, a mulligan which uh, <laughs> uh, the Democrats who tend to shank it into the woods uh, are finding a way to uh, uh, to to to, uh, to to not use to the maximum capacity that they should be able to do so. Uh, I think that right now uh, things are pretty much 50-50 and, and it's going to be nationally an interesting uh, election because it will be very telling uh, about and, and for America's future. Jonathan, how much do you think that the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade is a factor in the change, at least in how people seem to be feeling that the November midterms elect elections are going to go for Republicans? I think it lit the Democratic base on fire. Um, so I think it, it did them a favor in that regard. The, 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 the president is still a drag on the party nationally. His approval ratings aren't any, really any better today than they were a few months ago. So I, and, and circumstances in the country aren't any better. But the Democratic Party seems more uh, interested in, in turning its people out to vote. So I, I suspect from that standpoint, it's a good thing. I, I agree with Felix. I think it's it's pretty much a, it's going to be a draw in a lot of places. It's going to be very, very close. There was a pullout, I think, today that showed the New York governor's race within five points and Hockel under, under 50. So, um, I mean, if that's true, that's pretty remarkable. I, and also, I, I think there's still a lot of COVID that people are going to be voting on. There, there are a lot of officials that are going to be up for the first time since all this happened. I think there's a lot of comeuppance that's going to be due. Um, it, people are going to be voting on. And, and, and I don't think anybody started really to pay attention uh, yet to any of these races as individual races. Um, so we're still dealing very much with the fallout from Dobbs and, and the national environment. That's an interesting question. How much, Felix, do you think uh, is COVID lurking in the background of this? Because in the only elections that we saw in 2021, the two gubernatorial elections, now there were a, a lot of things going on in Virginia and New Jersey. Um, certainly in the Virginia race, schools and education were at the forefront. But that really, I think, was a COVID issue. And then in New Jersey, you see this huge surge for the Republican candidate, Chitterelli, that really was not that expected. Phil Murphy only wins by a couple of points when he was widely expected to win easily. Is COVID still lurking back there and a threat particularly to the Democrats? COVID is absolutely lurking. And, and we know that uh, that we expect a surge in the fall. Uh, and, and, and the track record has been that when we gather, uh, whether for Labor Day or for Thanksgiving, that's when we've seen surges. And so there's always that chance that it may begin to surge at a critical point and uh, affect the election. Here in the state of Michigan, uh, Governor Gretchen, uh, Gretchen Whitmer is running against Republican and Donald Trump supporter Tudor Dixon. And her main uh, campaign uh, message was and has been for the Republicans here that uh, that uh, that is that Governor Whitmer uh, over overused her power and authority in shutting down schools. And the main message from Governor Whitmer, because uh, I am here in Michigan as well, 
her message has primarily been about abortion, that Tudor Dixon is an extremist on abortion. I get the ads on a regular basis that she says no exceptions on abortion. So certainly we can see Gretchen Whitmer and I presumably a number of other Democrats and races when they can make abortion at the forefront are going to make an effort to put it at the forefront. But I think there's another couple of things that are lurking in the background here. We'll get to that when we come back. We'll be back. Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces. Just by giving her a bear hug, she masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, 
at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And I want to draw really the other big events of the week into this conversation on the midterm elections, which was President Biden's speech that he gave on Thursday at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. First, I just want to say, and I think we'll all probably agree on this. Whoever is on the advance team for President Biden, who selected that location and the lighting of it, uh, probably needs to be they, they need to get their resume up on monster.com immediately because the the ability the only way I think the speech lives on forever is in the pictures and in the memes of this red backlit Independence Hall and Biden standing in front of it, especially when he's criticizing the semi fascism of the Republican Party was a peculiar look with two Marines but behind him. I think this. Cl- Exactly. I think this is a curious. Well, that was a curious decision. But I'm curious what uh, Felix, I'll go to you first, what you think of this decision, which to me looks like President Biden also wanting to recalibrate these midterm elections to get people to think as much about Donald Trump as they possibly can and making it rather than a referendum on him and the Democrats for two years in power, instead to be a choice election again between Joe Biden and the Democrats and Donald Trump. I believe that was a huge mistake uh, for the president to take that approach. I, I, I would uh, I, I would defer with regard to the choice of the location uh, with Marines standing behind him uh, when when you're questioning the loyalty or the patriotism of the, the, the MAGA party. Uh, we're at a point in the United States of America where we need to be speaking about unity, which is what, something that uh, Joe Biden talked about in, in his campaign. And if ever he needed to have a conversation that spoke about unity, uh, it was it was during this uh, this delivery, especially before before the midterms. I believe that uh, the the uh, the environment, the Marines standing behind him, sent the wrong message to a lot of people and have pissed them off. And he has now uh, riled up the Republican base. And so uh, it is going to be a very interesting election. Jonathan, um, yeah, so the. So Biden and Trump have in common that they want the midterm to be about Donald Trump, um, which is uh, unusual, I guess, for <laughs> for both sides to essentially have the same strategy. Um, I I think that uh, look if he if he keeps inserting himself into races, if he keeps having rallies like the one he had, I think it was yesterday in Pennsylvania. If he keeps reminding people of all the stuff that they don't like about him, we're going to lose the races that we need to win um, to take the House and, and take the Senate, and we'll have no one to blame but ourselves, which is exactly who we have to blame for not having the Senate right now. So, um, and, you know, at some point we need to have a conversation about um, whether the Republican Party wants to be a serious governing party or whether it just wants to be a, a grievance mechanism. Um, and maybe that's for another segment, but, I mean, Trump's unfavorable is, I think he's at, 53% unfavorable, 40% favorable. He's actually lower than Biden this week. Um, and if that's if that's the midterm that the, that the Trump side of the GOP wants 
and uh, and Biden wants, then you know it's going to be a, a rough midterm for Republicans. Isn't there an irony that this speech by President Biden is given in Pennsylvania, where he is trying to lay out the threat that is posed by this MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Um, he has his own problems if you read the speech and parsing who exactly he's talking about in there. Uh, and, and sometimes it seems like he's talking about a small group. And then he says they believe, um, you know, they're, they're pro-life. Well, OK, so now we've taken it from a small group of people to largely the entirety of the Republican Party when he said uh, in the beginning of the speech that he wasn't talking about all Republicans. But the irony to me is this is a state where the Republican nominee for governor is Doug Mastriano. Um, this is somebody who I think is the kind of candidate that Joe Biden was talking about in that speech. You know, very supportive of, of Donald Trump, um, very invested in the narrative that the election was stolen. And this is somebody that Democrats spent a lot of money to help ensure that he was the nominee. I mean, it not Felix this inherently um, a problem it, for the Democrats that on one side they're saying this is such a great threat, and on the other side they are trying to bring them within a single election of being in power? Uh, that, that, that is a fact. Uh, the fact of the matter is that, that not all um, mega Republicans uh, are a threat to this country. Uh, there are Republicans who support Donald Trump, uh, whose interest and intent for the country is goodwill. We have policy differences, whether it's abortion, whether it's gun, uh, gun ownership in the United States, or how do we pay or administer education, there are many things. But uh, to, uh, again, to, you know, even though he indicated he was not speaking of all Republicans, we really haven't defined what a MAGA Republican is. So when you reference MAGA Republicans, you're throwing them all into one, uh, into one batch and, and, and alienating potential votes that could cross over. So uh, I, believe, uh, I believe that, uh, that there have been already some mistakes made. Jonathan, do you think this is going to have the effect that was alluded to earlier of in any way energizing Republicans, at least in a negative way? Because they're probably, again, because this definition of who who are these MAGA Republicans was so incoherent in President Biden's speech um, for the marginal Republican voters, somebody who could possibly see themselves going either way. Maybe they were a Donald Trump voter in 2016, had tired of him by the 2020 election. And they're looking at this and they're going that this enforces, I think, a feeling that ran through a lot of the right and a lot of the Republican Party that even if they're dissatisfied with elements of the current state of the GOP, they think the other side hates them. And there's certainly no way that they're going to go vote for them if they think that those people hate me and they think I'm a terrible person. And you get this kind of, well, then I'm going to go do the thing that you're telling me I shouldn't do. So I think part of the problem that you run into is that you leave people like me with very little choice um, when, first of all, you make elections a zero-sum blood sport that you have to win or else, you know, 50.1% is going to cram its policy priorities down the throats of the 49.9% that lost. Um, and then, so, so you, first of all, you turn elections into a zero-sum blood sport. Um, and then one of the parties goes crazy and you tell me that it's going to remain a zero-sum blood sport, but I can't vote for the side, for the side that I would normally vote for, whose policies I generally support 
but the zeitgeist of which I intensely dislike. Um, you know, it puts people like me in a very difficult position because I don't want to vote for Trump or Trump people. Uh, but if you're going to make policy uh, based on the tiniest of, minor- of, of majorities uh, and you're going to make sweeping policy changes that I really don't like, you're leaving me with very little option. And I think that's what you have in places like Pennsylvania and Arizona and uh, other places where you've got kind of the Trump-endorsed candidates uh, you're leaving people in the middle and people who don't like what the Democrats are doing and don't like Biden, maybe, but you're leaving them with uh, a very difficult choice. If the Democrats were to simply moderate and uh, uh, govern more from the middle and knock off the, the Civil War-esque rhetoric, I think that they would be able to govern for a generation or more. Um, the first party that figures out how to get its base committed to governing again and not just owning the libs or owning the cons is going to govern for quite a while. That does, doesn't look like it's going to be the Republicans anytime soon. Well, why can't we break out of this cycle? So you, you would think you get the normal feedback mechanisms, because if you go back really to 2000, you have these enormous pendulum swings over time, right? So it goes heavily in one direction, it swings back in the other direction. And the indication from voters seems to be that, you know, the repudiation elections, I'm tired and I'm done with you, so I'm going to go with the other guys. And then they overreach and I'm tired and I'm done with you, so we go back to the other guys. What is the problem, Felix, in this in our po- politics right now? That neither party seems to be able to learn the normal lesson from that and figure out that, well, maybe if I don't try to alienate everybody and try to grab as much as I possibly can at first, we could be a, a during governing majority. That is a fact. You know, one of the things that has occurred is that we're governing, as you well mentioned, from the extremes, either left or right. And we have uh, since since 2000. The reality is that most Americans are either center left or center right, right in the middle is where we are. And uh, and, and when we can find leadership that that will lead uh, based on policy, and progress, rather than who's right, who's wrong, uh, and, and, and buy into the rhetoric. Uh, until we get to the point that we find leadership that takes us in that direction, we, we're going to continue. We're going to continue to see uh, what we're seeing in our nation's politics. We were at a critical point in this country uh, uh, during the transition from uh, former President Jimmy Carter to former President uh, Ronald Reagan. And it required a president who could stand in 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 that void and and move the nation forward together. Uh, some would argue, some on the left would argue that 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 uh, Ronald Reagan did that. But in my opinion, uh, based on practice and policy and leadership, he brought the nation together again when uh, when we were extremely divided. And and that's the type of leadership, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat that we need in the United States of America. Yeah, that is, uh, it is an interesting question. We'll have to see who may emerge. It is going to be an interesting question to see who might emerge that is going to be able to make that kind of change, because I don't think that we're seeing that right now. And I think that is going to continue to be a problem for both parties moving forward until someone with that kind of leadership can emerge and uh there just doesn't seem to be the incentive structure for it right now Uh, so much more to talk about on this coming up 
More on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. Bye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And this is the time of the program where Bruce usually has our guests introduce themselves. And I am going to start this week with, well, with me, because I am not your normal host. Uh, so I am 
In my day job, the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I host our weekly roundtable podcast, Acton Unwind, and I'm the associate producer of a new documentary called The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom about the newspaper man and entrepreneur Jimmy Lai um, in Hong Kong, currently imprisoned by the Chinese Communist Party for his pro-democracy activism there. Uh, next up, Jonathan. Uh, I am in, in my day, day job, I'm an advisor to a, a family foundation, um, and I'm a writer on foreign policy, national security, and Jewish issues. Uh, I was Apex Midwest political director for three cycles, uh, and uh, have worked in politics most of my adult life. Felix? Hi, my name is Felix Sharp Caballero, Cuban-American, and I've worked, uh, or worked, I'm retired now, for about 32 years in uh, public service, working in executive administrations in the city of Detroit, the county of Wayne, and uh, the state of Michigan here. Uh, I'm a consultant and commentator, and uh, always enjoy Beyond the Beltway since I was a kid. Well, Felix, before I go to Jonathan, because he had something he wanted to add there, uh, since you have such familiarity with Detroit, you know, when I lived in Chicago, the joke was always that, uh, oh, Chicago is going to end up like the next Detroit. Um, talk to me a little bit quickly about Detroit right now is, you know, I get the impression that uh, Detroit seems to be on an upswing. Do you think that that's the what's the future of Detroit look like to you? Detroit is absolutely on an upswing. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I participated in, in starting that process. I was one of the primary negotiators for the three casino development agreements in, this, uh, in the city of Detroit, as well as uh, bringing the Detroit Pistons back from Auburn Hills and building the Tigers a new stadium, which we should not have done. We should have kept the old Tiger Stadium. But uh, having said that, Detroit is on an upswing. Uh, Mayor Mike Duggan has uh, has taken things to another level. There's significant investment there. You see cranes in the air. But Detroit, which used to be one uh, one of the few cities in the United States that dealt with a crime problem continues to have a crime problems. We see shootouts uh, on, on highways, and uh, there are daily homicides that have nothing to do with a police officer involved uh, shooting. And so Detroit is dealing with that right now, and also with the significant poverty level of about 65 to 70% of this population, which is also which also has a 70% illiteracy rate. Having said, said all that, uh, Detroit has the Detroit River, and we're in Michigan, which has the water systems. And so we're going to continue to see an influx of movement uh, and, and people moving into the city of Detroit. But Detroit is going to have to uh, determine how best to deal with the illiteracy, the poverty rate, and the, uh, the crime and substance abuse uh, addicted individuals and its citizens. Uh, in this group of citizens. So things are working well, but Detroit continues to have uh, problems. The difference today, uh, as compared to say 25, 30 years ago, is that uh, the rest of America now has those very same problems. And so, so, so to some degree, Chicago, I mean, we used to see busloads of, uh, of Michiganders headed to Chicago, the Miracle Mile, uh, to shop, to visit for the weekends. You don't see that as much anymore because of the level of crime and violence in the city of Chicago. And so uh, it's an issue that uh, that as a nation we're going to have to deal with. And, and of course, that, ble that, that uh, 
I don't want to say bleeds, but that takes us into the, this discussion, which I'm sure at some point we'll have, of you know, gun control in the United States. Jonathan, you had something you wanted to add on what we were talking about uh, in the last segment. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, we had talked about building a governing majority. And I just want to talk about the, the opportunity the GOP had this cycle and next cycle. And you actually have to look ahead a cycle in order to think about this. But uh, this cycle, we had we have four Senate races that are currently Democrat-held that were winnable for Republicans. And in two of those, we nominated somebody who was less than ideal. Let's be polite about it. And in, uh, and in another few that are Republican-held, we also nominated people who are less than ideal. And so we've not only made it so that the wins that we take away from this cycle will be less in the Senate, but we actually might not even get a majority. And what that does is we had four Senate races that were winnable. So if you think about a 54-46 Republican majority in the Senate, and you fast forward to 2024, which again, after the Biden administration, could be a very favorable year for the GOP. And you look at the map, look at the Senate map for 2024. There are seven or eight winnable seats and no, really no losable seats for the Republicans in 2024 which means that you could have been looking at a 60-seat majority in the U.S. Senate, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate that could do whatever it wanted. The last time there was a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, I think, were the Democrats during the Carter administration. Um, but you could have that in the Senate by 20, in January of 2025 had the Republicans not been stupid. And this is the problem with building a, a governing majority. You have to set aside your instant gratification and vote like the future depends on it. Uh, and, you know, the Republican Party has totally failed to seize this opportunity. It's really, for people who care about policy outcomes, it really sucks. So let me throw this out there as one of the reasons why this problem may exist and get your reaction to it. So you're talking about having political parties that care about their long-term self-interest. And they largely seem to operate as if they don't right now. To me, I think you can trace this back to the passage of McCain-Feingold and campaign finance reform. And you can go back to the speech that Mitch McConnell gave on the floor of the Senate where he said, this won't get money out of politics, it'll get money out of the parties. And you see that right now uh, draw to one of those races that Jonathan was referring to in Arizona with Blake Masters, even in Ohio with J.D. Vance. The money that largely got them nominated was not from the Republican Party. It was from Peter Thiel, and it was from PACs that were funded by Peter Thiel, a billionaire tech entrepreneur. So you have exactly this phenomenon that McConnell was talking about, where you have the money coming from places other than the parties, which means the party doesn't have a whole lot of control over what is going on. They can't withhold it from people who are bad actors. They can't reward it, uh, good candidates with that money. And as a result, it has become a free-for-all. Uh, Felix, how, how much do you think this change in the way elections are being run and where the money for backing these candidates is coming from is a affecting political parties' long-term self-interest. I, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, we can go back to campaign finance report. I think we can actually go back as far back to uh, Newt Gingrich and the contract with America. I believe that's where all of this started. Uh, the reality is that, that, that the parties are no longer the, the big dog in the house with regard to fundraising and supporting other candidates. It's special interest. And those special interests uh, 
also tend to cross over where necessary in order to support a uh, an opposing candidate that 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 might in the general election uh, uh, not uh, not do as well as 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 one that that may. Uh, one of the other dynamics that that we're starting to see is the disenfranchisement of the African American vote, which has been so important to uh, the Democratic Party. We are starting to see uh, indications where the Republican Party has more African Americans on their bench than does the uh, the Democratic Party here in Michigan. Uh, we will have three African American men, males, uh, who will be running uh, for Congress this uh, uh, in, in in November. The Democrat Democrats have none. As a matter of fact, uh, as a matter of fact, the 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 second district of Michigan, which was held by John Conyers, uh, who ended up being the dean of 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 the United States Congress for fifty five years was ceded to a non-African American. And so it is a dynamic that is also affecting the ability to, uh, the ability to uh, excite the Democratic base. And we, the Democratic Party, are losing African American votes every cycle because we're not filling that gap where the senior citizens are you know, moving on, passing on, and the young people are stepping up. It's a problem that the Democratic Party isn't considering, but it's going to affect it long-term because it doesn't have a long-term strategy. Felix, what should the Democratic Party be doing then to address that problem? Well, one of the things that the Democratic Party uh, should be doing is when we get to the point of redistricting, they need to truly stand up for uh, districts that support uh, the African-American community and its ability to get elected. Uh, in the last, the last redistricting effort, which would have been 10, 11, 12 years ago, another congressman from Michigan by the name of Hanson Clark was the one who had to cede his seat to, uh, to, to who became Congressman Gary Peters, and it's now Senator Gary Peters. So even here in Michigan, which is considered one of the most important blue states uh, in the country, uh, the Democrats are falling significantly short of, of uh, supporting the African-American uh, political experience, and the Republicans are stepping it up. Felix, real quick, as we're coming up on a break, do you think that uh, the Democrats are really in danger of losing African-American voters to the GOP? The Democrats are just in danger of losing votes. But yes, in some instances, you have African-Americans who are in the middle who will swing over and vote for the more qualified or qualified, say, mm -hmm. uh, African-American Republican. Of course, absolutely. I myself yep. would... Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Back with more in just a minute.
Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Eric Odin for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway this week. And you can give us a call to be a part of the program with us, 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. Felix, you had something you wanted to add there. I just wanted to, to add to, uh, from the last segment something I think is important. It might even get me in trouble, but it's the reality of what's happening uh, on the ground. With regard to what's happening with African Americans and the disenfranchisement of the vote and whether or not the Republican Party is properly supporting the, that community is starting to view, to be viewed as the uh, and, these, and I quote these are not my words the woke white woman problem here in Michigan uh, Senator Marshall Bullock 
lost his election to uh, Mallory McMorrow, I, I believe her name was, who gave a woke white woman speech from some perspective uh, on, on the floor of the Michigan State House and immediately was able to raise $150,000. And beyond that, after Hillary Clinton and some others liked her her, her uh, Instagram post or something like that, it was able to raise a million dollars, unheard of for a state uh, uh, candidate for the House of Representatives. But that is what's happening. And some in the Democratic Party have begun to talk about what do we do about the woke white woman problem? And it's something that should be discussed. I mean, we're- well, this is a... Go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I was just going to say, we're seeing the same thing with uh, Latino voters, the, especially in Texas and, and Florida. Um, the, the the numbers are shifting, I mean, not dramatically, but perceptibly. And it doesn't take a dramatic shift, especially in places like Illinois. Uh, if, you saw, if you saw a, a few percentage point shift of the black vote from Democrats to Republicans, it would be virtually impossible for Democrats to win uh, in Illinois. Uh, and I, I assume that's true in other places like Michigan. Uh, that uh, it doesn't take much, and if de- the I don't I don't think Democrat and, and again this is where it it just breaks my heart that the Republican Party has gone as as crazy as it has because there's a there's a governing majority a, a generational governing majority within reach um, there's a, a coalition that can be put together that Republicans are failing to put together um, because we're catering to grievance rather than trying to cobble together an issues-based coalition, which we could totally do. This is a interesting thing that is happening and has been happening over the course of about 30 years now, as I reckon it, that you have seen the bases of the Republican and the Democratic Party essentially swap, that college-educated voters in the suburbs, which had been the heart of the Republican Party, have moved over into the Democratic Party's camp, and blue-collar working-class voters have moved over into the Republican Party's camp. And this the interesting part of it, to me also, is that it shakes out, in in a sense, along class lines in a way that we aren't really attuned to in American politics, having it be about class, in that higher education really does seem to be a dividing line there, Uh, which again comes back to, I think, the action by President Biden uh, to forgive an amount of student loan debt. Uh, Felix, do you think it is fair to describe that, as uh, someone did when I was on this program last week, as uh, a bribe to some of those uh, upper middle class voters that he is really hoping will turn out for his party in the midterms? Well, the 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 Republic, the Democrats, I should say, and the Biden administration uh, put a full court press on passing uh, policy and legislation, uh, you know, to accommodate their needs in preparation for uh, the midterm elections. Uh, the gun control legislation, which really accomplished nothing at all, uh, and and the watered down uh, finance legislation that that was passed a couple weeks ago. Uh, absolutely. Uh, most of the uh, movement lately in the Republican in the Democratic Party has been to position itself itself for uh, the midterms. What they did not expect, that is, the Democratic Party, was that uh, that they would have a fighting chance. And and as we've already discussed, uh, with the Supremes acting um, uh, as early as they did in the year and allowing this abortion discuss- discussion to expand. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Democrats now have a chance. What they do with it will be determined by what Joe Biden does. 
uh, over the next uh, several weeks. Jonathan, do you think that the move to forgive uh, up to a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt is is this just cynical politics to try to get votes in the midterms? I, I mean, I think it's a big part of it. I don't think that's all it is. I think that there's also a, a, a uh, an illness on the American left that says that uh, anything that disadvantages anybody is is unfair regardless of how it came about i think it's it's a cultural problem just as much as it is a political problem for democrats but i mean biden explicitly ran on forgiving student loan debt it, it's not surprising that his base expects yes. him to deliver it so uh and, and it is a key voting block um the fact that it's horrible policy and an enormous moral hazard and it doesn't do anything to eliminate the drivers of the problem which means we'll be right back where we started from in a few years I mean, it's immaterial he promised he was going to do it and he's going to do it also the fact it's unconstitutional and a number of other problems but which i assume you guys covered last week so um but uh yeah it's i, I think part of it is a, a, a bribe part of it is payback for something he promised in the campaign and part of it is and i think the biggest part of it is a huge cultural problem do you think there's the chance though that it is any backfire on it that it is perceived poorly by the 60 percent of americans who don't have a college degree and and probably are never going to possess one yeah i think that it probably ticks off people who are already plenty ticked off and weren't going to vote for democrats anyway i think that the 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 normal outrage machine gins up and it, it the outrage machine reaches the people that it reaches and it still fails to reach the people that it fails to reach i don't think it changes any minds um and, and but it does it continues this uh, circumstance we have now where the party in power does everything it can to appease its own base through policy and beat up on the other side through policy and we get further and further away from each other and we hate each other more and more and you know how does the country continue to cohere through that <laughs> I think we've got to, uh, we're coming up on a break for the hour, and uh, we want to come back in the next hour where we're going to discuss the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev uh, and what that, uh, what his life and legacy has meant. Uh, so you're going to want to stick with us for that part of the program. We want you to be a part of the program with us, too. You can do that by giving us a call at 1-800-723-8289 uh, to join us and be a part of the program tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. hundredth time today here's that song again it's gonna be stuck in your head all day here's that song again it will make you cray cray you love your kids enough to watch that tv show a bajillion times love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size show them you love them keep them safe visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat brought to you by the national highway traffic safety administration and the ad Council. going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high quality education purdue university a top 10 public university took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created purdue university global for working adults discover innovative practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. 
Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Beyond the Beltway, hour number two, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont, uh, along with, from the right, Jonathan Greenberg, and I guess from the left, Felix Sharp Caballero. Uh, thanks so much to both of you for joining the program, and for all those out there listening to us, you can join and be a part of the program, too, by giving us a call at 1-800-723-8289 to tell us what you're thinking. Where I want to start this hour is earlier this week, Mikhail Gorbachev passed away. He has the distinction of being the only person ever to hold the office of president of the Soviet Union, which he held from March 15th, 1990 to Christmas Day in 1991, when the office was abolished and the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, with his death this week, it is reignite some conversation about how we should view Gorbachev's legacy uh, in his involvement in the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, for Americans, he is certainly a prominent person in the mind when they think about uh, the Cold War and the Soviet Union. I mean, he's the person who introduced uh, glasnost and perestroika and economic reforms. Um, but it is also fair to say that his goal was not what happened. His goal was not the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It was a reform of the Soviet Union. So I think it may be incumbent upon you if you believe, as Reagan had expressed, that there was something truly evil in that empire, uh, that the goals that Gorbachev was personally after of saving the Soviet Union were ones that were always going to be in, in tension with you. Jonathan, it, this in the wake of his passing, 
how do you and how should we view the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev? Um, I, I think there is both the historical perspective and the object lesson for us. Uh, and the historical perspective is that Gorbachev was a committed uh, member of the Communist Party and committed to the Soviet Union, uh, and that he really bumbled uh, into uh, dissolving the Soviet Union. I, that, that is not at all what he intended. Um, and But what ended up happening, I think Natan Sharansky, uh, the famous Soviet dissident um, and Jewish refusenik, uh, who went on to be a government minister in Israel uh, after Gorbachev let him leave the country, um, Natan Sharansky said it really well this past week. He said that Gorbachev didn't understand that you can't give people just a little bit of freedom, uh, that eventually they want all of it. And, uh, and Gorbachev thought that he could mollify people with a little bit of openness and a little bit of freedom, and, and it didn't obviously work out that way. It led to the, to the destruction of the Soviet Union. Um, I will say that uh, those of us who were around uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved and remember watching it on television... Um, and seeing Boris Yeltsin and others up on top of the tanks uh, outside of buildings in Moscow, um, Gorbachev could have ordered those troops to open fire, and he didn't. And uh, the, the, the way that the, so the old Soviet Union would have put down that movement would have been through, through force and through murdering an awful lot of his own people, and, and uh, to his credit, Gorbachev didn't try to do that. Um, that he, he, once the wave had built, he let it do its work. Um, so I, I think... The object lesson for us, though, goes back to what Sharansky said, that he didn't understand that you can't just give people a little bit of freedom. They want all the freedom. That's absolutely true. But the lesson for us is that that's why you need a mature, responsible citizenry to keep freedom from degenerating into license. Uh, and that uh, the only way that you maintain freedom uh, is by making sure that it's in the hands of a citizenry that won't abuse it. Uh, and Russia didn't have that citizenry. Russia didn't have that mature polity, um, and I'm not sure that we do anymore either. Felix, what do you make of the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev? Well, uh, first of all, Ronald Reagan was was not the only one who spoke of the the evil empire that uh, that existed in the Soviet Union. Hillary Clinton talked about it for 20 years, which is why she caught the. Uh, the the wrath of of the current uh, uh, leaders of of the Soviet of uh, of Russia, and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was was one of those leaders that comes along once in a lifetime. Uh, he went significantly uh, against the grain to change the political structure of of his country, but to maintain the socialist uh, approach that that uh, that the country had always aspired to rather than you know the so-called democratic approach uh, unfortunately the high the hardliners in that case uh, over a 10-year period eventually uh, won out and uh, and shortly before his resignation there was a quasi coup that that occurred uh, in in Russia led obviously by by hardliner, uh, Vladimir Putin. And so we are where we are today. There's, uh, uh, it was not a mistake that Mikhail Gorbachev was given the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, as was Nelson Mandela, as was uh, Martin Luther King, and, you know, those other leaders uh, in the world who have come along to serve their purpose and have moved on. He will always be uh, remembered 
uh, fondly uh, by the world. And, and I believe that some Russian citizens today wish they had him back. I want you both to answer this question, and Jonathan, I'll go to you first. How much credit does a leader like Gorbachev get for not what they did, but for what they didn't do. As you had pointed out, uh, not only could he have ordered troops to open fire uh, at near the end of uh, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he also could have sent military into the Eastern Bloc, um, into Eastern Europe to uh, put down the uh, uprisings that were abandoning uh, communist, Marxist, Leninist governance in those areas. Now, certainly, I you think you do get some credit for not doing the awful evil thing, but how much credit do you get, in, especially in, in light of him being in some circles called, you know, some kind of a liberator? Well, that was really not his intent. He just didn't use the most violent methods possible to put that down. Yeah, I think anytime you have power and choose not to use it, there's a nobility in making that decision. I, you know, you and I are both um, on the small government libertarian side of things. Uh, mine is a small L. I, th I think yours is too libertarian, but uh, I, I'm a, yep. I, I think that it's an incredibly noble thing when you have power that you choose not to use. And um, especially when it's the, you know, the, the power to, and, and I, th I think it would have, it, it, the world certainly would have condemned him, you know, using, taking military action against his own people. Um, but the people who had the power to bring him down wouldn't have, they would have, you know, lockstep supported it. And um, so I, I think, I think he deserves a, a great deal of credit for that. Felix, in about 30 seconds, how much credit does Gorbachev get for the refusal to act in, he gets in these all moments? Credit, he gets all the credit in the world. Let's recall that former President Trump wanted to open fire on the Black Lives Matter protesters. And so he gets all the credit in the world for choosing not to use power when he could have. Yeah, it's... There's something interesting, though, that I want to come back to in what Jonathan was saying in the anecdote that he shared about Natan Sharansky. We'll come back to after the break. Uh, this idea of giving away, only being able to give away just a little freedom and that not working out. I'm wondering if other world events over the last 20, 30 some years, how much that may or may not disprove that anecdote uh, that certainly came true in the Soviet Union but maybe not in other places. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. If you talk and they will hear you. 
We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So you can do it if you try. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Back on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And Jonathan, I want to pick up on that Natan Sharansky anecdote that you had shared, because I think right now we get a lot of parallels that are being made, uh, a lot of attempts to analogize and to compare what the Cold War was with the United States' current position vis-a-vis China. And... That Nishan Sharansky anecdote says you can't give people just a little bit of freedom because then they will start wanting all of it. To what extent does China disprove that? I mean, you have a incredible market liberalization that happens in China. You have them opening up to world trade. They join the World Trade Organization. You have um, a growing middle class as a result of the economic reforms that happen in that country that essentially they abandon communism they're not committed to the economic program of it in the way that the soviet union was and as a result a lot of people get less poor a lot of people get wealthy china enters the modern world in a way that the soviet union was never able to but arguably there's less political freedom in china now and less freedom of any kind other than economic and even within china there's limitations on economic freedom they were able to give people a decent amount of it and also to keep them away from demanding more in the way that people in the soviet union did what what do you make of all that well i I think that the chinese learned from the the soviet implosion um and i think what they learned is that there are more ways to control a population than just through force and and coercion that 
you there there's a whole population of people that you can just pay off you don't you don't need the NKVD going into people's houses in the middle of the night not everybody some people you have to go into their houses in the middle of the night to shut them up but a lot of people are just can be bought off um, I've, I've heard this said about Americans too that one of the, the one of the things that Chinese officials are always amazed by is how cheap uh, it is to buy Americans uh, but it's uh, you know it's certainly true in their own country you can you can motivate an awful lot of people uh, by buying them off, and the Chinese realize that if you make a, a number of people wealthy, uh, they'll go along with whatever you want, especially if you're able to take it away immediately, which of course they are. No, nobody's free in China, including the wealthy people. The, the, the market liberalization has benefited people, but they're not free. It can be taken away at a moment's notice by the Chinese communists, and they'll happily do it if, they, if those people grow a conscience. So I think they learned from this. Look, the, the liberalization in the Soviet Union didn't work. The, the Soviet Union became Russia, which is now dominated by a strongman dictatorship. Um, a lot of times when you have a citizenry that isn't prepared for liberalization, what you end up with is reversion to the mean of either a strongman or a clerical dictatorship. Uh, and in Russia, it's a strongman dictatorship. Well, what, well, let me ask you this before I come to you, Felix. Jonathan, I want you to answer. What would that look like to prepare a citizenry like that? So I, I think you have elements of that in the conversation surrounding the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if you look at the history of Afghanistan, that 20 years, while to many people seems to be an intolerable amount of time for the United States to be there, uh, arguably was just not enough time to prepare the citizenry of that country, as well as the military and the political class, the governing class of that country, mm -hmm. to be a self-sustaining country going forward and to be able to hold off a challenge like the Taliban would have presented or even to try to outweigh it. Uh, what, what does it take? And do we have the appetite uh, as the United States do we have an appetite for that kind of thing anymore, even if we can look and see you know, like the inability to prepare Russia um, from the global community's perspective, from the United States perspective, the inability to prepare them for what the future would hold, the inability to prepare Afghanistan for what the future would hold? Is there any appetite for doing what would be necessary to avoid these kinds of horrific outcomes? I think what it takes is the insane accident of history of having George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and James Madison all at the same place at the same time. Uh, I mean, that, I think that's <laughs> that really is what it, it, it takes. Extraordinary leadership. It takes extraordinary founding principles. And, and then it takes a citizenry that's willing to be led toward those founding principles and maintain them and their institutions. Um, and uh, we were lucky that, that there's a reason that the world isn't populated by, you know, throughout human history by liberal democracies. It's because it's really hard to maintain. Uh, it's hard to set up in the first place, and it's really hard to maintain. Um, so if you don't have a, a culture and a citizenry that's prepared for it, um, or if you have a culture and a citizenry that doesn't maintain it, uh, it's very hard to hold on to. Um, and, uh, and but that's, I, th I think we see that all over the world now. Felix, what parallels do you think exist between the uh, Soviet Union, the decline of the Soviet Union, what we saw there, what we've been talking about with Mikhail Gorbachev, and and what the uh, Chinese may have learned from that? We get all of these analogies to a new Cold War. Do you think there's much to that, or is it just a markedly different situation with China now? Well, uh, what China what China created for its citizenry and literally created a, a middle class in 20, 30 years uh, was financial freedom. Uh, the Chinese people 
uh, and if you visit China, it's visible everywhere, do not have uh, social freedom necessary. They're watched wherever they, uh, wherever they transit. And, uh, and if you speak out of turn, you are, you are taken to the woodshed. So culture does have uh, a lot to do with it. Uh, in the United States, we had the American Revolution and an entire population uh, that had won a war in its independence uh, from Great Britain and were of one mindset and we were ready to move forward. But you take uh, the change in Russia uh, after, after, uh, you know, after years of dictatorship, then along, along comes Gorbachev, uh, makes changes and goes against the rain, a grain, the grain rather. He was fighting, uh, he was fighting the establishment and the extreme right-wing uh, parties of, of, uh, uh, of the, the Russian socialist system. And so the people were not ready. They were not of one mindset, which created a population of people that were open to uh, ideology and other programmation, if I can use that term. And therein exist, exist the two differences. The Chinese people are of one mindset culturally and socially and so um very easy to uh well as well as the, the leadership of xi jinping as well too you can't discount that as well too uh but the chinese people have always been of one mindset and so uh they continue to be hey, jonathan what you said earlier uh, about the chinese finding it amazing how cheaply they can buy americans um i when i introduced myself uh in the last hour i mentioned this documentary film that the acton institute has produced about uh, the hong kong dissident jimmy Lai. and one of the things that i have always expressed when i have been going around the country with this film and talking to audiences about it when i'm a, I, I usually get a question of something like you know is there anything that makes me hopeful or optimistic and uh, usually the answer that i give to that is there were people who spied for the Soviet Union and uh, Americans who spied on behalf of the Soviet Union. And they did so largely because of an ideological commitment to the project of the Soviet Union. There are Americans who spy for China. They do it for money. And money certainly is powerful, but it is not the kind of thing that overwhelms you, I believe, in the same way that ideology does, that the commitment to some abstract ideal of what is the good um, commits you to the things that you will do on its behalf. So in that sense, even though China seems to be so enormous and uh, just such an incredibly enormous player on the scene, which they absolutely are, the fact that it is based uh, so much of it on money and the ability to either buy people off or how much money corporations, the NBA, right. see that they can make in China, I think has at least the potential to be its downfall. Does that seem like it makes any sense? Yes, except that the amount of corruption that the Chinese Communist Party has been able to, raw, to, to bring about in American institutions over the last several decades really is staggering. Not just our financial institutions, but uh, corporations and the like, but also our cultural institutions. You mentioned the NBA. Uh, the, the the amount of corruption in those institutions really is staggering, um, and the amount of control that that they've been able to have. I I, I will say quickly, um, there was a kerfuffle when the first uh, uh, advertising pictures from Top Gun Maverick came out that to, that uh, Tom Cruise's bomber jacket 
had had a patch from Taiwan uh, taken off of it to appease the Chinese. You remember that? And in the movie, it's there. Um, so mm -hmm. at some point, they decided that the movie that they were making was a pro-American movie and, you know, screw the Chinese. And I remember seeing that in the theater and immediately saying, well, that's great. Maybe this is the, maybe this is the beginning of, of those institutions fighting back. I, I certainly hope that it is. Felix. Yeah, I think we've seen very little uh, examples of those institutions fight, of institutions in the United States fighting back. And an excellent example of that is uh, United American Delta Airlines, the American uh, airline industry was required about two years ago by China if you were flying to Taiwan to reflect that it was China rather than Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they did not do that, then they would not be able to fly to China. And the American auto, I'm sorry, the, uh, the American airline industry capitulated. And so if you fly to Taiwan, unless you're taking a charter uh, or your own plane, you are flying to China. Yeah, and let me, let me just say, there, yeah, is, it is. there is nothing too petty for the Chinese Quickly. to throw a tantrum about. Nothing is too petty for them to freak out about. They'll freak out every little thing. Yeah, the funny part, too, of the resolution of that uh, Top Gun Maverick anecdote is that apparently when they had a chance to screen the film, they came back and said, well, this is just too pro-American military, you know, and it's... It's Top Gun. Right. <laughs> How are you going to make it not pro-American military, which was eventually where this was inevitably going to uh, fall apart. But yet it is a small symbol of beginning to uh, some kind of a beginning change there that could turn into something else. Eric Hohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. We'll be back in a minute. basketball court all wet because the players kept dribbling on it the dad joke corny grown worthy but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids what did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school bye son <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh because dad jokes rule make your kid laugh today go to fatherhood.gov brought to you by the u.s department of health and human services and the ad council at Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media, many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.
No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. <laughs> can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Eric Owen filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And Jonathan, I want to come to you first on this one. Uh, the headline that I am reading here from CNN, Iran's response to nuclear deal, quote, not constructive, U.S. State Department says. That is from two days ago uh, in regard to the negotiations the Biden administration through other parties have been in with the nation of Iran trying to resurrect the Obama-era nuclear deal that they had with Iran that was uh, subsequently abandoned by the Trump administration. I know you follow all of this very closely, so why don't you update us all on what is the current status of the negotiations on a new nuclear deal? What could it potentially look like? What do we know about it? Where does it all stand right now? So the, the easy one to answer is what do we know about it, which is not very much. I mean, the, we've heard reports, but those could just as easily be part of a negotiating tactic because they could be things that are actually in the the kind of the contours of a of a deal um what's been reported is that there are billions of dollars in uh sanctions relief for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps which is the elite uh, military unit which is actually a terrorist organization uh that largely runs the Iranian economy uh, so billions in sanctions relief for their senior leadership um there's uh apparently a revocation of the conventional arms ban uh, in terms of selling conventional weapons to uh, to Iran, so countries would be able to sell whatever conventional weapons they want to Iran, which right now is illegal. There's no um, uh, inspections regime in the deal for the Atomic, International Atomic Energy Agency, which under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Iran is still a signatory member of, they should have some kind of inspections regime, and that's not on the table as part of this deal. And there's no plan to send any of the details to Congress, which is actually required by law. There was a law passed in 2015 called the Iran Nuclear, uh, the Iran Nuclear, uh, I don't remember what it is, though. I don't remember what the R stands for. It's INRA. Is the, uh, but they're, they're required to send the details to Congress, and Congress has to vote up or down on it. Um, and uh, there's, apparently there's no plan to do that. Fifty uh, House Republicans and Democrats, bipartisan letter, uh, was sent to the Biden administration urging them to follow the law and send whatever Iran deal comes through to Congress, and there's been no response. Um, listen, uh, my position on this hasn't changed in seven years. Um, we shouldn't be negotiating with them. They're a signatory member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Uh, they have obligations under that treaty. Uh, they are under 
I don't remember how many it was. They were the, the United Nations Security Council resolutions that were sanctioning Iran for its behavior in violation of their treaty obligations were rescinded with the Iran deal in 2015. Shouldn't have been. And Iran prior to that was in violation of its treaty obligations. And you don't negotiate with someone who's violating their treaty obligations. That's like saying that I can get in trouble for stealing and the judge says, I'm going to send you to jail, and I say, actually, I don't think so. Let's negotiate. It doesn't work that way, right? If you're in violation of something, you get punished for it. You don't negotiate your way out of it. Um, so we shouldn't have been negotiating with them in the first place. We shouldn't be negotiating now. The person that we've sent to negotiate is Wendy Sherman, who is the architect of every terrible international agreement that we've had over the last 20 years. She's the one who negotiated the nuclear deal with North Korea that worked out so very well. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's regurgitating these incompetent people uh, trying to sell you a used car and uh, you know, what do I have to do to get you in this used car? Uh, so the, uh, I, I'm sure there will be some kind of a deal that will come through. I'm sure that it will be handled exactly the same way the Iran deal was, where it's over the objection of a majority of Americans, a majority, bipartisan majorities in Congress. Um, and I have no idea why they keep doing this uh, other than uh, I, I can't imagine they think it's a good idea. It's going to actually keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons. It guarantees Iran will get nuclear weapons. Uh, but for some reason, this is... Uh, the Obama-Biden foreign policy team's uh, favorite thing to do, and uh, it's uh, it, it is will be yet another disaster. Felix, should we be negotiating with Iran? You know, uh, we are one world, and uh, the pandemic and the COVID virus uh, has has blatantly revealed that to us. Uh, Iran will have nuclear weapons, whether we negotiate or not. Uh, yeah, Vladimir Putin has expanded and broken all international rules. And to some degree, we had the same issue in the United States. Uh, all rules have been thrown, uh, have been thrown out with the baby in the bathwater. And uh, if we don't negotiate. Uh, well, and the other important thing there is that Israel will have a significant say, and depending on, on timing and the negotiation of this deal, we may or may not get it done uh, before the next presidential cycle. But uh, but we should be negotiating uh, with, with Iran because we're one world, and we have to begin to have discussions about nuclear weapons. Uh, how and, 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 and how they should not be used and place some standard and control system in place to safeguard the entire world. Jonathan, your response? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lovely sentiment. It just it, it, it assumes good faith on the part of the people who are doing the negotiating. Iran's never demonstrated that. Iran has been altogether happy to break every agreement they've ever made, including the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which they've repeatedly violated, including the Iran deal, which they were in violation of the day it went in to effect, and they've been in violation of it ever since. So, the you know this is a regime that's hell bent on obtaining nuclear weapons because their national ethos requires it. Um, they are the largest state sponsor of terror in the world. They are a net ex a huge net exporter of terrorism. They will export nuclear terrorism if they're allowed to get nuclear weapons, which they can't be allowed to do. And of course, we can stop them. We could. The United States could stop them fairly easily militarily. It would, uh, uh, it would, there would be obviously blowback, significant blowback, but it could be militarily done. Um, but that's the only way that we're going to do it at this point because they've decided to, to obtain nuclear weapons, whether, uh, whether we like it or not. Also, I just want to point out that, I just want to point out that, um, most of the oil in the world, uh, travels through two choke points every day, the Strait of Hormuz, um, 
uh, and in the, in the Persian Gulf, and uh, the Bab el-Mandeb uh, in the Red Sea on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, Iran will effectively have control of both of those checkpoints through bases in Yemen and Djibouti and, and of course, in Iran. Uh, and if they're a nuclear power, you can't just go out and sink their ships, right? You, you, can, you can sink non-nuclear powers' ships. You can't just go around messing with nuclear powers. So if Iran controls both of those choke points where most of the world's oil travels through, and they're a nuclear power and you can't mess with them, think about what that does to, the, to international trade generally and specifically to oil. It's a, it's a nightmare. We can't allow them to have nuclear weapons. We can't. I want to bring this, Felix, I'm going to go to you. I want to bring this back afterwards to an American political question, but go ahead. So uh, we've come to the point where we can't resolve uh, differences through war. That is plainly obvious. And the United States can control Iran through military action. What are we going to do? Use a nuclear weapon against them? Uh, that's, you know, all of the talking points were on point, uh, but that really is not reality for where we are in the world today. And you can't forget the, the backing and the support that that Iran has from China. The dynamics of of world politics have completely shifted. And the last country to break a an agreement on uh, on nuclear treaties was the United States. I want to come back, I'm going to skip going to the point that I wanted to make, because I want to come back to Jonathan with this question. Uh, what should we be doing? So I, I think I think Felix is probably right that there's no stomach, as we talked about previously, mm -hmm. with military intervention vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan. There isn't a stomach for engaging in that kind of military activity. Um, and you say that we shouldn't be negotiating with them. What should we be doing? We should target their nuclear facilities. I mean, look, first of all, we should get in the Wayback Machine, go back 10 years and have done it 10 years ago um, before they got as close as they are today. Um, but I, of course we can stop them from having nuclear weapons. We target their facilities. The nuclear weapons are incredibly difficult to build. They're incredibly expensive to build. The facilities that you need, the uranium that you need to enrich, the level to which you need to enrich it, it's actually very difficult to do. And then the research that you need to do to attach the warhead to your existing missiles, I, there's, a, there's a ton of research and development that, it's, that is required, and they do that research and development. They've spread their, their, their nuclear program out all over the country. We know where those facilities are. Some of them are very well guarded. Some of them aren't. Israel's been slowly, and, and us probably too, but certainly Israel has been slowly killing their scientists for the last 20 years, um, and that's likely what slowed them down to the, to the level that they're at now. Um, but that's a, and Stuxnet, you know, the, 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 the cyber program that, that was spinning their, Centrifuge is much slower than was being reported to the Iranians. So, like, there are, there are things that we, we and the Israelis have done to slow them down, but we're not going to, that's not going to work long term. If, if it, either we target their facilities militarily or we start getting used to the idea of them having a bomb, you can negotiate about whatever you want. I mean, it's, it, uh, ultimately that's about you're negotiating over how slowly and how politely they'll get nuclear weapons. Do either of you, though, think that there will be enough of an appetite for that kind of military action? No. Absolutely not. So are we just then resigning ourselves to the idea that Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon? Yes. And Because I imagine if you went out and asked average people about that, they're not going to be happy with that either. And in a sense here, you get to the problem, right? You get to the dilemma and that all the choices in life are between good, two good, um, uh, competing good things and competing bad things because the choice between a good thing and a bad thing isn't a choice at all. Yes, we'll regret. And so that's exactly why we 
back to the negotiation table and start to have conversation about this subject matter in order to avert nuclear weapon. They are going to uh, develop nuclear uh, weapons uh, eventually one way or the other. Better to be at a table having a, a discussion about uh, the use of nuclear power uh, than to be isolated from one another, waiting to see who's going to push the button first. Well, I, I look forward in thirty seconds. I, yeah, I look forward to saying "I told you so" while slathering myself with a million SPF sunscreen. Well, you'll need to let us know where we get a million SPF sunscreen because I assume we're not going to be importing that from China anytime, uh, anytime soon. Uh, but yes, uh, an incredibly difficult problem that I don't know that we have figured out how to deal with. And especially if, if you're correct, that there is uh, no appetite for either of the solutions, that either of them are going to work out, then uh, it, it will be interesting to see what transpires here in the near future. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zinc and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) 
<gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Eric Hohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And now I will bring it back to that American political point that I wanted to make in the last segment, because I think it ties a lot of things that we were talking about here together. And that is a question about the role of Congress. So, Jonathan, as you'd mentioned with regard to the Iran deal, we are seeing the uh, president's administration saying essentially that they're not going to send this to the House, even though they are required to do so. The previous Iran deal, which, you know, looked like a treaty to me if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and operates like a treaty duck then maybe it is a treaty and they should have submitted it to the senate for ratification they didn't do that um, you see president biden taking the action he did on student loan relief which is as jonathan you noted something that is probably unconstitutional because the president does not have that power you can go back through plenty of previous administrations even in the kind of pendulum swings that i talked about of uh talked about earlier of so many of this, these things being done through executive order and then being undone immediately by the next president how much jonathan does the diminished role of congress make all of these problems worse um well it does make them all worse the only caveat that i would add to that is that congress is so full of talk radio wannabe is that maybe it's not worth sending it to Congress, but of course they should, and, and Congress should be full of people who could take those things seriously and either pass them or not. It, it means that, you know, one administration does, crafts a deal, it doesn't go through the treaty process, it doesn't have any force in American law, it can just be canceled by the next administration, which is what Trump did to the Iran deal, thankfully, uh, and what the next Republican administration will do to whatever Iran deal Biden crafts. Um, it's an absurd way to make policy. We have a treaty uh, uh, stipulation in the Constitution for a reason. Uh, that's how we should engage with foreign countries. We should do it by American law. And, uh, and but also we we have a totally toothless, um, you know, Congress focused on infotainment and not on governing. And so you know they they have largely made the institutions have largely made their own beds. You, Felix, what? How, what impact do you think this is having with uh, Congress being willingly or unwillingly cut out of all of this? I mean, again, as I said, we see this through numerous presidential administrations. It's not like this is something unique to uh, President Biden. Exactly. And I would agree with you. Uh, we have become accustomed to uh, governing by executive order at the federal level. And and uh, Congress uh, has been left to uh, its own devices, and 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 as Jonathan mentioned, uh, a lot of talk radio wannabes, a lot of uh, individuals who are simply uh, positioning themselves for high office or uh, enriching themselves in one way, fashion, or the other. Uh, the problem is that our democracy has come to a grinding halt. And the next several years, uh, especially this midterm election, and, and, and eventually the next presidential cycle will determine what direction we go in and whether they, there will continue to be 
uh, conflict in the American system of government, governance, but uh, it is through executive order. And uh, the previous administration, Donald Trump, the the uh, Obama administration, through through executive order, everything Obama did, Donald Trump reversed. Whether whether it was the Iran uh, a treaty, uh, the steps that he took on Cuba, Obamacare, uh, everything that the previous administration did, he attempted to reverse. And interestingly enough, this administration has been slow to reverse many of those things. The focus primarily was uh, saving Obamacare, but we still have not come back to the middle. Yeah, the, the changes that the Trump administration made to refugee policy, uh, I mean, any number of things that Trump also, the bump stocks were banned by executive order. The, it, the, this has become the new way that we govern, uh, and it's, not, it's certainly not just Democrats. Republicans have done it, too. But the reality is, yeah. if the Democrats are going to do it, Republicans are going to respond. And Biden just overturned all of the executive orders that Trump did on day one, and the next Republican administration will just That's overturn the same. not true. Felix. That is simply not true that Biden overturned all of uh, all of Donald Trump's executive order on, on day one. Jo- Joe Biden has been very slow to make change while he tries to bring the, co- the, the country together. That is simply just not true. Well, let's try to end it here with um, is this dysfunction in the federal government? You know, President Biden gave the speech about the threat to democracy. John, is this dysfunction in the federal government? Is this the real threat to democracy that we have an executive branch that is acting larger than its writ? And we have a Congress that should be supreme that is not acting as it is. Um, No, uh, that those are threats. But no, the real threat to democracy is that we have a citizenry that doesn't give a crap about it and isn't doing anything about it and doesn't even know that it's happening because there's a, like a fifth Kardashian show on that's super cool now. So the, it, the that's the real problem is that we have people who aren't paying attention. We have people who look at politics as um, either a lifestyle or as their religion. We have people who are um, uh, uh, angry and, and pissed off about politics all the time but can't name their state legislators. Um, People are, are very, very interested in what's going on in Washington and not interested in what's going on in Lansing or Springfield, um, and which is where most of the laws are passed that actually deal with your daily life. And um, we, we, have a, we have a citizen's problem. Congress is a symptom. Felix, is that the biggest problem? Uh, the Kardashians are the ones uh, really to blame here? I could not agree with Jonathan Moore. That is a huge problem. Participatory democracy. Our uh, our voting numbers continue to go down. Uh, And our interest in news has gone away, period, because we are watching the Kardashians and just to bring balance to this, uh, or Steve, I forget the comedian's last name, you know, but we're not focused on the things that we should be focused on. Well, I want to thank both uh, Jonathan and Felix for uh, joining me on the program tonight. And I want to thank uh, Bruce Dumont for handing the microphone over to me for this evening. I had a great time, and I hope everybody in the audience really enjoyed it as well. It was a pleasure uh, talking to both of you gentlemen, and it was a pleasure uh, sharing this program um, with all the great people who listen to Beyond the Beltway every single week. So incredibly grateful for uh, this opportunity. Uh, Thank you so much to Bruce and to the great people at W. U-I-N-D for the great work they do to bring this program to you every week. So once again, uh, Jonathan Greenberg, Felix Sharp, Caballero, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Eric Cohn, 
filling in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger for 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone, you know, call 1-800-662-HELP brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, a kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.